0: Well, today, we're going to continue walking through uh, Second Peter, which we looked at last week. And, um, walked through most of chapter 1 last week. And I wanted to preach through chapter 2 this week. And, um, realize that the last part of chapter 1 kind of set up chapter 2. And really the main theme and what we're going to talk about today. Um. So I want to start in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 16, kind of finish out that chapter as it sets up really all of what chapter 2 is about. Chapter 2 is all about false teaching, false preachers, false prophets, false believers, because they buy into that stuff. And so to set that up, um, he talks about the last uh, part of chapter 1, kind of some of his experiences. You have to understand when the when this was written, this was a letter Peter wrote from a most likely from a jail cell in Rome uh, before he was executed, and uh, and there was no chapter and verses. It was just a letter, um, and that's how almost all the New Testament was when it was written. Um, really, even the Old Testament as well. Um, but scholars added the chapter and verses later, so they would be easier to look up for people like us, right? Because uh, now that We've, this has been canonized, this is the word of God, and and uh, we study it, and we devour it, we eat it, it's our bread, amen? Whew. And so, Second Peter chapter 1, I want to pick up where we left off, remember last week we talked about, um, Peter says three different times, make every effort, <laughs> make every effort in your faith to grow in your knowledge of God, and to make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never stumble. You'll receive a rich welcome into heaven. I mean, that's a huge promise. And so we talked about that last week. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God, the father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Anybody know what Peter's talking about here? He's talking about what we've come to call the Mount of Transfiguration Uh, it's shortly before he goes into Jerusalem, uh, for the last week of his life. And he takes Peter, James and John and says, Hey, come with me. And they go up this mountain by themselves and they get to the top. And it says, Jesus is transfigured, meaning his clothes all became dazzling white. He became bright like the sun. He was radiating the literal manifest glory of God. It says Moses and Elijah both appeared and they just started all having a little chat you know about what he was about to go through and it, 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 Peter James and John witnessed all of this remember that story Peter freaks out and he's he doesn't know what to do or say so he's like uh oh, it's good for us to be here let's build shelters for one for each of you you know and it says he didn't know what to say cuz he had no idea what to do he was so in awe kind of terrified of what was happening but in a good way you know that's really the the essence of the meaning of the word awe when you're so in awe of God that you're a little bit terrified, uh terrifyingly wonderful is how someone recently put it in our church uh God's been doing some terrifyingly wonderful things in our church and through our church, and it's awesome, but you're like, "Wow, woo, this is God <laughs> like wow, it's amazing and so that's how peter was was feeling in that moment, and I love it like the Father just cuts him off, he just ignores what peter's saying, and he's like. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Kind of like, shut up, Peter. Listen to him, right? And it says after that moment, they get up and they're going down the mountain in holy silence. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection. Don't tell them about this until it's time. And so what Peter's saying is, I'm not making up stuff. I saw things I can't unsee. I'm a witness. Now, why would Peter say this? I'm not making up stories. Why would he say that? Because some people were saying he's making up stories. Probably the Pharisees who knew the Bible really well, religious leaders, who it says out of jealousy they crucified Christ Because Jesus was moving in not only in deep knowledge of Scripture, but also power of God. Signs, wonders, and miracles. They were jealous of the following. Thousands of people following Jesus. And so they crucified him. And so then his followers start doing the same thing after Pentecost. On the first sermon Peter preaches, 3,000 get saved. Incredible. And so they're most likely... Spreading all kinds of the same stories that they spread about Jesus. All oh, these guys are making this stuff up. They're not of God. This is of the devil, actually. The, the religious leaders not recognizing that this was God in their midst. Making up stuff to discredit them. And Peter's like, let me tell you something. We're not making up stories. I was there. He had two other guys with him. The Apostle Paul said after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then he says in another place in Scripture, there's, many of them are still alive to this day. You can go ask them. There's eyewitness accounts that validate not just nobody will ever argue. Was Jesus a real man? Did he really teach good moral things? Was he alive on this earth at the time that Scripture says he was? Nobody, secular, religious, or otherwise, will argue that. Everyone knows that's a historical fact. What it comes down to is, was he who he said he was? Did he rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then he was absolutely who he said he was. And it's all true. Now, if you wrestle with doubts about historical accuracy of Scripture... Um, the historical fact, facts of what I'm talking about. It's not for this sermon. I highly recommend you read a book called The Case for Christ. Don't be lazy and just watch the movie. <laughs> the movie is about the guys who went through it and his personal relationship with his wife. and all. It's a good movie. You're not going to get the depth of insight of what he discovered. It's a true story, right? Lee Strobel was a profound, ardent atheist. He had a law degree. He was editor of the Chicago Tribune. His wife got saved, started telling their kid about Jesus. He didn't like it because she told these fairy tales as if they were true. He didn't like that for his daughter. So he set out on a mission to do a ton of research as a lawyer and a journalist would. And his goal was to disprove Christianity and to write a book about it so that he could get his wife back. And through that process, what he discovered, and I'm going to paraphrase a whole lot of the book, he basically says the weight of the evidence, if you weigh the evidence as a lawyer, as a judge would in our day and age, as a journalist, if you weigh the evidence, it's in favor that the Bible is true. So he said he got to the end of that journey and says, I only have one decision here. If the weight of the evidence, factual historical evidence, says this is all true, then I need to align my beliefs with what the evidence is saying. And so he surrendered his life to Christ and instead of writing a book to discredit Christianity, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's a phenomenal book. If you keep coming to church and you keep wrestling with, yeah, but I just don't know if I can trust the Bible to be true and that's where the source of this information, that's the book you need to read. So, It will help you with that. It will help you understand that these guys were eyewitnesses. They had no good reason to keep promoting this after Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't getting wealthy out of this. They were getting killed. And yet they promoted it to the end. The only reasonable conclusion is that they just actually believed the things they were saying. And again, there wasn't just one. I've said it many times. Most other world religions, it's one guy who said that he had an experience with God, and he wrote it down, and you should believe me. Mohammed, Buddha, one guy. Christianity, the Bible, written over a period of 1,400 years by over 40 different authors over three different continents, In three different languages, yet it tells one comprehensive story from beginning to end. Many witnesses all saying the same thing. So go read that book if you struggle with that. Peter's saying, hey, we're witnesses. I was there. And here's the second thing he says. We also have, verse 19, the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic message he's talking about is the Old Testament scriptures. Some scholars, most scholars I'll say, believe there are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. For example, he'll be born in Bethlehem, it says. He'll be known as a Nazarene. He'll, out of Egypt, I called my son, right? Those are just three different examples in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled all of these things. There's not just three, there's over 300. There's a big study done um, by a guy named Peter Stoner, chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He was passionate about Bible prophecies, so with 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, he looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with ex- extremely conservative probabilities for each one being pr- fulfilled. And then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies. This is just eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament. The conclusion in his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy those eight prophecies, one person, was just 1 in 10 to the 17th power. In Science Speaks, which is a like a magazine type thing, he described it like this. Let's try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the 10 tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is 1 in 10. Suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them down on the face of, of Texas, the state of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. That's how many uh, silver dollars that would be. Now mark one of those silver dollars. Stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man. Tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes. He must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of, had of writing these eight, just eight, of the prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Just eight of the prophecies, the likelihood that one person in history could fulfill them is 10 to the 17th power. There's over 300, which means I'll paraphrase it this way. It's mathematically impossible that Jesus could have fulfilled that many prophecies. But he did, which would seem to tell us these men, the prophets of the Old Testament, who wrote the Old Testament books and letters, right, were not just making stuff up. Perhaps they were have a divine guide known as the divine mind, known as the Lord God Almighty, who is telling them what to write. And so it wasn't by chance. And that's why one man could fulfill them. And that's why Peter's saying, We have the prophetic message as completely reliable. He's speaking to the Pharisees who love to study the Bible, who keep saying Jesus is not the Messiah. He's like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many prophecies there are about Jesus being? There are Orthodox Jews to this day who are waiting on the Messiah. They know the prophecies of the Messiah. But the veil covers their hearts. They refuse to believe it could be Jesus, that he could have already come. Peter says, you need to, we've got eyewitnesses, but here's a second witness, the word of God. You do well to pay attention to the prophetic message. And he says, verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy in scripture came about by the prophets own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter didn't know is what we do know now, that science backs up what he just wrote because it's mathematically impossible that the writers of the Old Testament just made stuff up and Jesus happened to fulfill the hundreds of prophecies written by them and canonized by the way, canonized over 400 years prior to his birth. Perhaps one of the reasons God stayed silent for 400 years is so no one could say, well, when G- after Jesus was born, he started doing stuff. Then they wrote one of those Old Testament books and said, oh, look, he's fulfilling stuff. No, that was all those prophecies were written. Then 400 years of silence. Then he's born. Then he fulfills them. Man, I find this fascinating. So Peter's making the case The prophecies about Jesus confirm he's the Messiah and we have our own eyewitness experiences. The Bible confirms their personal experiences. So he's saying we're not false teachers (laughs) like these Pharisees are telling you about. And with that in mind, then he switches to what he writes in chapter two. And so this is where we pick it up, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about in the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you. There's going to be false teachers at all times in history, right? There's going to be people who are deceived and being deceived and deceiving people. Some outright know they're deceiving. Some think they know the truth, but they don't going to happen. So he switches gears and he begins to warn them about these people. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Heresy means false teaching, something that's not true. Even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, by the way, which is the most severe form, when false teaching is um, fully conceives, (laughs) you end up with Jesus not being Lord even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. There's a consequence to false teaching. There's a consequence to false believing. Swift destruction, judgment. So, he's saying we're not false teachers, but there will be, and they will be destroyed. And he goes on to say, as we're going to see, the people who follow false teaching will end up experiencing judgment. So how many of you would say it's important to know what false teaching is so that you know how to stay clear of it? Yeah. It's a big deal. Um, Yeah. So what, how can you discern what false teaching is? Let me say it this way. What is the biblical litmus test of false teaching because I'll say this we have a plague in at least in modern American Christianity of accusation Christians of the same kingdom who are firing bullets and arrows at each other and they're using the terms false teacher false teaching false prophet heresy Not of God. How can you know if that's true of someone or not? Here's my main point today. Don't go by what you think. Don't go by your feelings. Just get a bad feeling about them. What's the Bible say? The Bible tells us what the litmus test is of false teaching. It tells us how to tell. This is what it says. He says, when it's fully conceived, they'll even deny Jesus as Lord. And that's interesting. John, one of the other apostles, wrote it this way. 1 John 4, 1-3. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What he's saying, he's letting us know that when someone speaks... What they don't realize is it started in the spirit, spiritual, your mind, ideas, right? So when it's not just a man speaking, he's being guided by the spiritual, whether it's his own spirit, demonic spirit, or the spirit of God. So don't just believe everything that someone's speaking. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Here it is. I'm going to tell you how you can tell what false teaching is. Every spirit, a.k.a. person, that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? If someone confesses Jesus Christ is Lord of all, it's of God. Now, if they don't, then it's not of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, again, a third person. Now Peter's saying they'll deny Jesus as Lord. John says that's how you can tell. Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve three, therefore I want you to know, he says, you guys were deceived and led astray by mute idols, pieces of wood that couldn't even talk. So he's that's his point. He's like, I need to let you, like how much more will you be led astray by people people who can't talk? So he says this, therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. No one full of the Holy Spirit will ever say, Jesus be cursed, or Jesus isn't Lord, or Jesus is not of God, or Jesus isn't the Son of God. Nobody speaking by the Holy Spirit will ever say that. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So if you have a Christian teacher who openly says, man, Jesus is Lord. Scripture says, that person is speaking by the Spirit of God. It's interesting. If you have someone who says Jesus is not Lord, that would be false teaching, right? So, for example, example, some easy ones in our day and age: um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, New Age. Lots of them say, "Oh, Jesus was a teacher, good moral teacher. He's like a Moses or a, one of those guys." But he's not the son of God. They deny Jesus is Lord. It's false teaching. Now those are the easy ones, right? Because Peter started out saying that when it comes to false teaching, that they'll even eventually, they'll they'll introduce destructive heresies, but then even denying Jesus is Lord. Meaning, when it is fully conceived, they'll deny Jesus is Lord. But a lot of times there's a progression It's a scale In other words, there's a lot of christian people who start out jesus is lord the bible is true Then they start wrestling with doubts. They start reading things. They start hearing things from other people They start wrestling with culture all that mix Then they start drifting Then they start going, I don't know if the Bible's like literally true. I don't, you know, culture's really progressed. And, you know, I don't know if God really wants us to live it the way it says it. And they start drifting. And so it's a scale. And John writes about this uh, when he says, 1 John 4, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Right. Then he says this. He goes on. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than he is in the world. He's saying you who are of the spirit of God, you're going to overcome the false teachers, the false preachers, because you have the spirit of God in you. Listen to this. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. He's not talking about secular, humanistic, atheistic people. He's talking about religious preachers and teachers who are speaking not from the viewpoint of the word of God, but from the viewpoint of the world. My extremely beautiful and wise wife recently said it this way, and I'm going to give her credit. You will either interpret the word through the world, or you interpret the world through the word. If you do the former, interpreting the, wor- the word through the world, that's when you start become in become in, in danger of not just false teaching, but false believing. And Peter goes on. And he says this in verse two, 2. Peter 2, verse 2. He switches from talking about false teachers. They'll do this. Now he's going to talk about false believers. People who believe false things about God. They're believing in a God that's not really the true God. This is what he says. Verse 2. Many. Many. Many people will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. He's talking about the false teachers are doing this, the people who buy into what they're saying. Apparently, there will be many, many people who end up following this way. And he says, this is what it looks like. They follow their depraved conduct, and then they bring the word of God, the truth, into disrepute. So they're not following the word. They're following their conduct. They're following their ways of living. They twist the truth of God to align with their depraved conduct and call it Christianity. That's how it's looking in our day and age. It's a golden calf, but they call it Yahweh. It's a golden calf, but they call it Jesus. It's a golden calf, but they call it Christianity. There's a songwriter named Sam McCabe who wrote a really great song here recently in the last year or two called I Want to Serve God. And the chorus says this. I don't want to follow a God that's always on my side trying to enshrine my dispositions and call it the divine. Because at the end of the day, who's really leading who? Do I want you to look like me? Or do I want to look like you? Isn't it convenient if you can twist and contort scripture to fit how you already live, then you never have to change. Makes you feel real comfortable. But man, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the Father conforming us into the image and likeness, character Of his son Jesus. That requires great humility. God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Man. One of the. Scariest forms of God's judgment. Is when he just lets you. Go the way you want to go. When he just lets you believe. What you want to believe. And it's there in black and white. but you say well i just think and he goes okay because you go that direction long enough and man there's a there's a cliff and you could fall right off it says many 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 people will do this why do we never think it could be us you ever think about that it's like man these people are really bad a lot of them out there <laughs> it's not me isn't that funny? We never consider. Scripture says we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. You know how I have, I have confidence I'm in the faith. Do you know how I have that? It's not because I examined myself last week. It's because I examine myself every morning. I read the word of God and I humble myself to it. And there's a lot of mornings I go, oh, you messed that up yesterday. Sorry, Jesus. (sighs) Humble myself again to the word. I got to live what he says. That's how I remain confident every single day. Many people would do this. How can you tell if you're one of them or if you're starting? Again, it's a progression. Nobody wakes up one day and is like, I don't believe in God anymore. (laughs) Very rarely. It's a progression. Hurtful things happen. Christian people hurt them. Churches hurt them. They wrestle with, how could a good and loving God allow all the pain and suffering? And then eventually end up in the dark place. I just don't believe it anymore. So how can you tell if you're on that progression? How can you tell if you're getting close to that edge Let me ask you a question. Do you twist, contort, change your life to fit scripture? Or do you twist, contort, change scripture to justify your life? If you're doing the latter, you're in danger of creating a false Jesus in your own image of what you think he's like. Rather than reading the word and going, this is what he's like. I need to humble myself to believe what scripture says. So he goes on. He says, in their greed, these teachers, what he's about to do, really the rest of the chapter, is he's like, it starts here, there's a progression, and it gets, goes from bad to worse. And then they end up at this really bad place. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. He's like, they're the ones making stuff up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. God will, let me say it this way false teachers and false believers will be judged. Does God still judge people? There's been people who've left this church because I talk about God's judgment because they believe, well, Jesus paid for all our sin on the cross, and God's nice, and he loves us, and he's always nice all the time, and God poured out all his wrath on the cross, and so he doesn't do that anymore. Keep reading after the Gospels. Just read in Revelation. Those seven bowls of God's wrath that he's pouring out on the earth, people are suffering, that, that was not the devil doing that. That's God. And then it says the angels cry out, you are just for doing this. What's God's hope in that? People wake up and turn back to him. It says a great multitude will come out of the tribulation. People who wake up because of the judgment and humble themselves and confess Christ as Lord and they're saved. God disciplines those he loves. God absolutely still judges people. He judges his people. Let judgment begin with the house of God. Listen to how Peter goes on. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, And made them as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. He's saying God's a good, just judge. When his judgments are coming on the world, he knows how to save his people and keep them safe. Again, read Revelation. Read Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah. God saves the faithful. He saves those even out of the judgments coming on the earth. He saves his people who are being faithful. You know, Revelation talks about the mark of the beast. It also says God marks his people. And he saves them. One of, if you read the Old Testament prophets, one of the signs of God's people during times of judgment is they lament, grieve the evil in the world. And so if you look at the world and you're like, oh, there's so much injustice, there's so much evil, it grieves your heart. That's a good sign. <laughs> your conscience is alive. You're, you're, you're seeing the world through the lens of the word. It shouldn't make you hate the world, condemn the world. It should humble you, make you pray more for the world, should make you want to reach the world, love people more, especially people who don't know Jesus. They're not the enemies. They're led astray, ultimately, not even by false teachers that are people, but by demonic spirits that are causing those things to happen through people. And so it should cause us to pray a whole lot more. Peter goes on the rest of the chapter and he describes how bad it gets. The temptation is when I'm not going to read the rest of it. You can read it for yourself. The temptation is, when we read this, is that he's describing how bad it gets in its worst form. And the temptation is, when we read that, to go, well, I don't do that. I mean, that's horrific. (laughs) Good, I'm not one of those. But again, how many of you would say there's people on the earth that are 100% godly all the time, they never mess up, make a mistake, or have a wrong idea about God? Okay, I don't see any hands. So it's not like there's 100% right people and there's 100% wrong people. It's a scale. It's a progression. And scripture in the New Testament warns us again and again and again and again and again and again. Be careful that you don't start sliding to where you start viewing the word through that lens of the world. Make sure that you're viewing your life, the world, the events going on in the world through the lens of the word. Okay. So I want to spend the rest of our time, let's do a case study in our modern day and age of false teaching and what it looks like in our day and age. I want to deal with a specific topic in our day and age that causes a whole lot of people to be uncomfortable and is the source of, I would say, most of the current modern day accusation of false teaching. Okay? It's the Holy Spirit. So let's do a little case study of that um, and examine this together. First of all, I want to say, by the way, in America, there's 33, over 33,000 denominations of Christianity. Churches and people who say Jesus is Lord. We believe the Bible is the authority of the word of God. Over 33,000, which means there's over 30, 33,000 different ways we've disagreed with one another. <laughs> On things that don't matter. I mean, they matter. But not enough to say, he's a false teacher, she's a heretic. They're not of God. You won't see them in heaven. Be very careful. Be very careful before you call someone a false teacher. God will also discipline you for that if it's not the case. Be very careful most of those 33,000 denominations, you know what they disagree over? Well, they do baptism and communion different than us. It's false teaching. They experience the Holy Spirit different than we do. They think salvation works different than we do. They think God pre-elects and predetermines everyone who's saved and it's all predetermined. It all works out. We don't think that. False teaching. False teachers. Not going to go to heaven. They don't read the same translation of scriptures we do. False teachers. They have lights and fog machines. And they paint their ceilings black. That is not, Black is not a color of God. False teaching. False preacher. Not of God. What's the litmus test? They don't do those things like us. Is that the litmus test? Do they profess Christ as Lord? And here's the next question. Do they live like it? Do they live like it? Because you can profess Christ as Lord, but not live like it. In danger of being a false believer. Jesus said Matthew 25, not many... Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you can't just profess it. You have to actually live like it. And that goes back to what I was saying. If you twist scripture so you keep living how you want, but it's different than what scripture says, if you say Jesus is Lord, you're not living like it. If you don't live how he says, you're, you know what you're living like? You're your own Lord. How can you tell if Jesus is your Lord? You live like it. You stay humble and surrender to his word. So here's one. I'm not sure that's the Holy Spirit. They do Spirit, Holy Spirit different than us. They believe in those spiritual gifts. We don't do that stuff. False teaching. False preacher. Not the word of God. So, let's examine that according to scripture. And I'm doing this on purpose, because our church has been growing in the Holy Spirit progressively over the last five years or so. And people talk, don't they? And so I want to help you all, the people I help shepherd, have a, a paradigm. I don't want you to just say, well, Aaron said it. It's true. It's of God. Mm-mm. What's the litmus test? Scripture, not me. So you heard it from someone you respect who goes to a different kind of church. What's the litmus test? They have a doctorate degree in Bible. What's the litmus test? So modern Western European Christians have a problem with two main things when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to tell it like it is. Speaking in tongues and prophecy. Almost all churches go, Oh, well, yeah, God still heals. Let's pray for healing. Most churches will do that. That prophecy stuff and that speaking in tongues, that's where a whole lot of Christians go, I'm just not sure that's God. I don't think God does that anymore. Probably the devil, even. Whew. Why is that? Whole other sermon probably because they don't do it, they've never experienced it, perhaps because they don't have that spiritual gift. Perhaps they grew up in a church culture that said those things are not of God, which I would believe would be a word curse, a demonic stronghold that you would have to break and renounce and seek deliverance from. So what does Scripture say? And this is... (laughs) I'm not even going to get into is the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts of God. It's just read the New Testament. And imagine you grew up on a desert island and you've never been to church. You found a Bible and you read and you believed it was true. And then you got rescued and you came to a church. What would you expect to experience in that place? Think about it that way. So Acts chapter 2 When the church is born at Pentecost, think about this. How did the early church start? A lot of modern Christians who don't like supernatural Holy Spirit stuff. Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 got saved. Hold up. You're skipping something. (laughs) (laughs) It's the word of God. Uh Uh-huh. I agree. You're skipping something though. They were together praying. They didn't know what to do. They just prayed. Suddenly, they heard a sound. Supernatural. Rushing violent wind. Sounded like a tornado. Freight trains coming. What's going on? They see a supernatural vision over each other's heads. Fire. Flames of fire. What is going on? The 12, the 120 gathered... What did you say? I don't know. It's what scripture calls speaking in tongues. It says it, all of that holy hot mess drew a crowd. There were Tens of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem gathered for the festival, the Jewish festival of Pentecost. They apparently got out in the open doing this, and all that drew a crowd. And everybody's like, what is going on? And some of those people, these are Jewish people from all over the world who spoke different languages. It says they heard them speaking in their own languages. It does not say the disciples saying it understood what they were saying. They didn't. The Spirit of God overwhelmed them. Blah! They're puking a language they don't know. And people are hearing it, and they're going, these men are Galileans. They, I, they don't speak our language. What is happening right now? Freight trains, tongues of fire, crazy chaos of languages. What happened then? Peter preaches, and 3,000 get saved, Right? No, no, you're skipping something. Verse 12, Acts chapter 2, verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, which means absolutely, utterly confused. They asked one another. Everybody's asking one another, what does this mean? Even the ones that were amazed were confused and going, What does this mean? I don't understand it. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. It seemed like they were drunk. Why is that? You ever heard a really drunk person try to talk? Probably sounds like they're babbling on in some language you don't know. These guys are acting funny. This is weird. Some of them made fun of them. I would propose, we don't know for sure from scripture, but I would propose the 3,000 who got saved were not of those who made fun of them, mocked what God was doing, and said they've had too much wine. I would propose that the 3,000 who got saved were in awe and wonder. They were amazed, utterly confused, (laughs) shocked, At this terrifyingly wonderful occurrence. But they hung around long enough. To see what it meant. And after this holy hot mess of confusion. Peter stands up. And he says these people aren't drunk. That's not what this is. This is God. This is God. He quotes Joel 2. The Lord will pour out his spirit on his people in the last days. They'll see visions. They'll have dreams. What's interesting is speaking in tongues is not even mentioned in Joel 2. Jesus never told his disciples, when the spirit comes in power, you're going to just suddenly speak in tongues that you've never spoken in before. He didn't give them a heads up. It's not listed as one of the signs, and yet it was God. You know, the Holy Spirit has permission to do things. That you don't give him permission to do. I found that out. A couple weeks ago. No, it was a little over a week ago. I didn't give him permission. And he immersed me. Took me over. And I started doing things. That I had not given him permission to do. One of them was speaking in tongues. During a sermon. That this man was preaching. The Lord said. You've spoken in tongues a little bit. Before this. He said, You're about to have a whole river come out of you. And he got done preaching. And they started praying for people. And this man prayed for me twice. And I started shaking. I didn't stop shaking for about three days. I'm not kidding. I went to pray for my wife, who was getting prayer. And I went to pray in English. And English did not come out. A river of a whole lot of different languages came out. A river. And I didn't shut up for about three days. I was doing it in my sleep. The next, I didn't sleep that night. I was just laying in bed shaking and thinking about everything. I woke up fresh as a daisy. (laughs) Went the whole next day. Apparently, the Lord told me I was prophesying, just walking up to people and had no thoughts come into my head. Like, I'm going to pray for this person. Just walked up and went, spoke things over them, things of God. Pretty much every person I did that to just starts weeping. It wasn't me. I heard someone say, there are times when you get baptized in the spirit that the Lord puts you on like a glove and he does whatever he wants. And he did that to me. For about three days. <laughs> for the first three hours or so of that experience, I couldn't say any phrase in English without translating it into tongues. I had no control over it, it was just happening. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. I was very uncomfortable. You can ask my wife. I said, this is weird. I was convulsing. I was shaking. I got really hot. (laughs) For three days. (laughs) Some of those things I went up and said to people, I'm like, I do not want to say this right now. But I said it. And I told my wife, I said, this is scary. For me. But I don't want it to stop. Because I know it's God. And so I've been filled with the Spirit before. But God touched me in a really special way a little over a week ago. And to be honest, it, it kind of went through most of this week. And um, still having some aftershocks. <laughs> and I speak in tongues now. A lot. It feels good. I like to do it. It's a prayer language. It helps me stay connected to God. It's, it's beautiful. It's actually the Holy Spirit praying through me. Oh, I'd much rather him pray than me. Then I know I'm in alignment with his will. I'd heard people who talk in tongues cherish it and talk about how awesome it is. And I never knew what they meant until now. But the Lord had given me a wisdom, enough wisdom, when we started this church to obey his word. And say, hey, don't just do it all the time. Nobody's going to know what you're talking about. First Corinthians 14, I'm paraphrasing. But don't you dare forbid it. Paul, you have to understand, the people who started the church that we all claim to believe in, they all spoke in tongues. All of them. Paul says, I'm grateful that I speak in tongues more than all you. And with that authority, he could say, you need to shut up and speak in tongues. You are a common tongue so unbelievers can hear the gospel. But don't you dare forbid it. Why? Because it's God. Prophecies. What scripture say. Not what people, not what the church you grew up in of men who get uncomfortable because they've not experienced it. And they get, it's funny, those guys get feelings and go, oh, I get bad feelings. I don't like it. That's called discomfort. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom to obey his word. The fear of the Holy Spirit brings bondage. The Holy Spirit is God. The gifts are God. They're Jesus giving gifts to his church. What scripture say about prophecy, don't treat them with contempt. Don't mock them. Don't hate it. Don't say it's not of God that's treating it with contempt, but test it. How can you test it? Unless you share it. I think God is saying this to me. Or the Lord spoke to me. Or the Lord gave me a dream. Right? You got to share it. And then people weigh it. Don't treat prophecy with contempt. Don't treat tongues with contempt. Humble yourself. This is how God works. One of the things God told me when I was having that experience. That I couldn't shut up about. Is the reason he chooses to do it this way is it keeps his people humble and childlike so that his church doesn't become a bunch of Pharisees who know the word real well but they're never experiencing the spirit and if you've ever been in a season where you study the word a whole lot but you just feel dry as a bone what does that do it causes your spirit to go God I just need a touch from you I need the Holy Spirit to come it Causes us to seek the spirit more We need the Holy Spirit, and it's founded on the Word of God. And so, in closing, let me just ask you a question. Am I a false teacher simply because we actually act like we actually believe the Bible is true? We should be experiencing spiritual gifts, so we ask God, and He actually does what He says He's going to do in His Word. He gives them, and then we use them. Am I a false teacher for that? Or is it actually more biblical? That's a good question. I'll let you decide, but I will say this. We as a church are going to experience the Holy Spirit in greater and greater ways, and we are going to operate in spiritual gifts. And therefore, if you're going to be a part of this church, if you're going to call it home, you, you don't have to experience every gift. You don't have to even want every gift right but you need to bless others when you see them using it not being fearful not treating with them with contempt not complaining about it when you leave this place that's not unity and i need to tell you this too if you call this church home you will be misjudged you will experience being mocked being misunderstood At times, perhaps even being slandered, betrayed, excommunicated, ghosted, or shunned. Perhaps at times, even by other Christian people. Because they don't understand it. Don't get mad at them. Bless them. They just don't know. But I'm telling you all this because the Lord's been preparing us for this since we've existed. But there is an outpouring of his spirit coming. That's something else I couldn't shut up about. And a whole lot of things that have happened over the last seven, eight years have been coming together. And I'm like, oh, well. Our church was born for this. And our church is about to be reborn for this. (laughs) And um, there's an outpouring coming of the spirit. And I just want to let you know, it might be a holy hot mess for a hot minute. There might be people being overwhelmed with the Spirit of God in in amazing ways, but they might be ways that you're uncomfortable with because you've never experienced it or for whatever the reason. It will be amazing and confusing, perhaps, at the same time. We may not even understand what's happening at first, but if you stick around, you eventually will see this is God. I believe your heart will be cut you'll fall to your knees and say, Jesus, I want more of you. And that's the only response that I can give. And so I'm excited for what God has in store. And I bless you. And uh, let's pray. God, I love you so much. We just thank you for what you're doing in our midst. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. And uh, we just say, Holy Spirit, come. More God. Pour out your spirit. We love you, Jesus. Your name we pray. Amen.